0: Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word, turn with us to the second chapter of the Gospel of John. We are moving right along with the life of our Lord. Excuse you. (laughs) That was bound to happen at some point. As an aside, today marks one year ago today, and tomorrow will be the calendar day, but one year ago today we officially launched Flatland Bible Church. One whole year already. Time has flown by. We thank the Lord for his faithfulness, and we look forward to continuing to see what he does with us, through us, and among us. Last week we looked at The very first sign in Jesus' life, it was at the wedding at Cana. I want to help us to keep in mind this morning that as we read through John, you've heard me, I think, every single Sunday say, remind us of what John's purpose of this gospel is. You might even be hearing me repeat that in your sleep at this point, which is good. Because as we read through each section and study each section, we want to be reminded of why John is recording this section. Why is he recording this event? Why is he recording what is happening? Why is this here? It's not merely a historical document for us just to see, oh, isn't it awesome that Jesus did this? But John is very intent on helping us to see that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God so that we will believe in Him and have eternal life. So that is true of the first sign at the wedding of Cana. That's going to be true today as we look at Jesus cleansing the temple. This is a story that you're undoubtedly familiar with, and I want to deal with something at the very outset, just to get it um, sort of out of the way, if you will. Most of the, in the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this account is found in every single one of them. But John is the only one who puts this account at the front of Jesus' life. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's actually found at the end, the final week of Jesus' life, if you remember. Right after the triumphal entry, the next thing that Jesus goes on to do is he cleanses the temple And so this is a passage that is actually often pointed to by people who want to argue against the inerrancy of Scripture, saying, well, see, which is it? The Bible can't make up its mind. Did Jesus do this at the beginning of His life or was it at the end of His life? Which one, or His ministry rather, which one is it? I am very confident to say to you this morning, there is a lot that you could go and read and study about in, in this conversation, but I am of the opinion, uh, as many are today, that it's both, that Jesus did it twice, that he opens up his earthly ministry by cleansing the temple, and there is much symbolism in that that we will get into today by the grace of God, <clears throat> and it was done at the end of his life. And we can see that as you look at the differences in the accounts In the Synoptic Gospels, you can go and study that on your own. There are differences in what's going on. It's the same principle, Jesus is cleansing the temple, but the conversation, the things that Jesus says, the response of the people, they're different. So I am led to believe that this is the first cleansing of the temple. So, with that in mind, if you would, take your Bible and stand with us as we read The account of the first cleansing of the temple. We're going to read starting in verse 12 through 22. And this is the word of the one true and living God. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken us forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. And may it be so with us today. Let's pray. Father, as we open Your Word, I want to be the first to confess that I need Your help. There's no way that I can preach Your Word faithfully, accurately, with the proper measure of, of truth today without Your help. We need Your help this morning, Lord. We need your help to hear, to understand, to grasp, to see. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would search our hearts this morning. I pray that we would walk away this morning with a proper understanding of worship. I pray that Christ would be glorified and his people edified through the preaching of this word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You be seated. Last week as we followed Jesus and His disciples to a wedding, Jesus was performing His first sign. He turned water into wine. We remember that Jesus saved the bridegroom of public shame and He also gave those of us reading about the sign a a taste of the joy that only Jesus can provide. Now let's put ourselves in this story here, in this narrative Imagine being one of those disciples right now, walking away from Cana. They're probably riding an emotional high. John wrote in verse 11 that they saw Jesus' glory and believed in Him. No doubt this little trip from Cana down to Capernaum was full of excitement. The disciples have left everything to follow after Jesus, and now they are getting their first glimpse of the divine power that Jesus possesses, this indeed must be the Messiah. We followed after Him in faith that He is, and here He is performing a miracle that only the Messiah can perform. Imagine what His mother is thinking. We know that she was the type to treasure these types of moments up in her heart. As Luke records on several occasions that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Perhaps she's thinking even of the change in her relationship with her son, that he is so much more than her own son. He is her Lord. Either way, we know that this next step in the ministry of Jesus will not be quite as joyous, will it? John informs us here that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover feast, as you, we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see that it plays a, a vital role in his account of Jesus' life. He's going to mention it three different times, possibly even four times, but with three explicit references to the Passover in Jesus' life. That, by the way, is one reason why I would say that this is the first time that he cleanses the temple. But it's interesting, here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we find the Passover, we find Jesus cleansing the temple, and then in the final week of Jesus' ministry, don't we find exactly the same thing? It's the Passover, and He's cleansing the temple. And as you know, this was a significant day in the life of the Jews. People would come from all over the area to be in Jerusalem to observe the Passover, some historians say that Jerusalem likely had a couple of hundred thousand people normally just in the regular population. And during Passover, it could be north of two million people that had come to the city to go to the temple to be a part of the Passover celebration. This is, needless to say then, a very busy time in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It is a week full of incredible significance. And that's something that we should take note of then. That Jesus chooses to perform his first sign in private where largely nobody knew what had happened except for his disciples and the servants. And now he is going public. This is his public entrance into his ministry. Interestingly, as he's cleansing this temple, he chooses the busiest time of the year. It could have been any time, but he's choosing Passover. These two temple cleansings that we see in Jesus' ministry, they serve as, as bookends to his earthly ministry. So then, let's see what we can find in this narrative of Jesus cleansing the temple we're going to see His zeal on display. Verse 14, In the temple, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. We see Jesus coming into the temple. There are a few historical details that will help us to wrap our minds around what is going on here. This temple, is, as you know, is the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon and as you know it was ransacked and destroyed as the Jews were taken off into exile by the Babylonians it was destroyed in 586 BC. We find out in the book of Ezra that it's under the rule of King Cyrus that Zerubbabel is given permission to go back and rebuild the temple. Over the next several hundred years, various rulers contribute to the rebuilding of the temple. And over a couple of hundred years, there is a rising and a falling, a two steps back, two steps forward, one steps back sort of thing, if you will. Some build up and renovate the temple, some desecrate the temple, depending on how righteous or wicked the king was. And then About 20 B.C., that's when King Herod sets out to renovate the temple. As you know, King Herod is the king during the life of Jesus, or at least in part of his life. He sets out to renovate the temple. And he's even expanding the temple from its original size. The whole temple concourse covered 15 acres, 17 acres originally. And he doubles it in size to now where it's covering 35 acres of land. And now in case we've never seen an acre, we have a couple of farmers who can tell us that's a lot of land. That is an incredible amount of land. And there was a wall that would cover all of that acreage. And as you come into the temple from the main gate, the first court that you're coming into is the court of the Gentiles. As you know, that's where you and I would be allowed because you and I are Gentiles. We are not of the Jewish lineage. And that's where you and I would go into. And in the court of the Gentiles would surround at the very center, that's where you would find the temple, and it was sort of propped up on a pedestal with steps leading up into the temple, surrounded by more walls, and inside the first wall is the court of women, where women would be allowed, and then inside of the next wall is the court of Israel, and that's where the men would be allowed, and this is where the actual sacrifices would take place, and then you would arrive at the actual physical building the temple. Well, it's outside of all of this in the court of the Gentiles where Jesus is walking in. And what is He seeing during the the most significant time in the, the life of the Jew, the most significant week on the calendar of the Jews, in the most widely accessible part of the temple, what does He find? He finds people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. As I said a bit ago, people would make the pilgrimage from all over to Jerusalem to observe the feast. And people would be coming to offer sacrifices in the temple. And as you can imagine, it was much more convenient to be able to purchase an animal for sacrifice when you arrive in Jerusalem instead of traveling many miles by foot with an animal for sacrifice. So that's why they were offering the the option to purchase an animal. This is an animal that you would use to sacrifice. Some say that they had inspectors there who would inspect the animals to make sure that they were clean. And these inspectors would spend upwards of 18 months on a farm learning how to see if an animal was clean or unclean or whether or not it would become clean Unclean, if it was clean. So as you can imagine, when there is a person who is eager to make a quick buck, here's an opportunity for us. You bring your animal, your family's coming to the temple to worship, and you've got your animal with you that you decided to bring to the temple to sacrifice. And there is the inspector, and he is the professional. He's the one who would know whether or not this is a worthy sacrifice. And you bring it to them, and they say, Oh, no, that one's not going to cut it. That one's not going to work. But we do have some for sale over here. Well, isn't that convenient? You've got some for sale, and nobody's animals are good enough to bring in for sacrifice. I'm sure that there is nothing amiss here. Surely the people in the temple are running a good and moral business, aren't they? As you know, the Pharisees were lovers of money. This was a really good business for the temple. But that's not all. Jesus also sees money changers inside the courtyard. What are they doing? You can think of them as the kind of people, sort of a, a foreign currency exchange. Because as you come to the temple and you want to give an offering, you would only be able to give it in a certain type of currency. And so, hey, we provide that for you as well. For a percentage, of course. And this was another way that they would make a good amount of money. Some say that they would charge you two hours worth of labor, but for the amount of uh, currency that you would need to exchange, the amount of currency that you likely would have on your person, the amount that it would cost you could be a whole day's worth of labor. Now with over two million people in town, you can see this is probably a wonderful enterprise for these temple workers. During Passover, you can imagine that this place is busy. During a time when they were to have their minds on what God had done for their forefathers in saving them from the Egyptian rule. As during a time when they should be coming to the temple contemplative, thinking about the Lord, Ready to offer their sacrifice and confess their sins before God, to worship the one true and living God, praying, perhaps reciting Torah. Jesus walks in, and that's not the sound that he hears. He doesn't see people who are contemplative, he doesn't see people who are ready to worship the Lord. What does he walk into? Is the sounds of oxen and sheep and birds and deals being made. There are no songs of assent being sung, and if they are, they're being drowned out by the sound of the animals. It's not God's Word that you can hear being proclaimed loudly. Instead, it's the sound of business going on. This is a time where they should, most of all on the calendar, be thinking about God. Thinking about the blood of the lambs that were put above the doorpost. To keep the household safe as the angel of death went through the city, killing the firstborn. But instead, everyone's mind is far from God. It's on business. And as you can imagine, Jesus is indignant. He doesn't walk in and say, that's fine. You know, worship God however you want. Whatever works for you, he's indignant John writes that he makes a whip of cords and he drives them all out of the temple. Sellers, buyers, animals alike. He pours out the coins of the money changers. He flips their tables over. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We like to think of meek and mild Jesus, don't we? We like to think of the Jesus that we see on water paintings with the feathered hair and the high cheekbones and all that he wants to do is give you a hug. He's a nice guy. He's a nice fellow. We like the come to me all who are weary and heavy laden Jesus. And we forget that Jesus is also the table flipping whip of cords making Jesus. My friends, if we think for a moment that this was a calm, relaxed moment in Jesus' life, we would be sadly mistaken. There is lots of passion in this text. And we know that to be true because the text that's referred to that they were reminded of is from Psalm 69 that says, zeal will consume me. That is, passion will overwhelm me passion for your house will be all-consuming. Jesus didn't physically harm anyone, but he was very stern and assertive. He was filled with a righteous and holy indignation. Beloved, let us be very careful that we not form our ideas of Jesus based on what we think Jesus is like. Let us not be found making a God of our own understanding because it is very easy. We listen to popular so-called worship music today, and if that is where you form your theology from, your understanding of who God is, rest assured you will have the wrong idea of who Jesus is. Because in popular music today, isn't he just grace? Isn't he just love? Isn't he just the way maker? Isn't he just the miracle worker? Isn't he the one who has reckless love? You would have a wrong idea of who Jesus is. And then you find in Scripture this account of Jesus coming into the temple with a whip of cords. Who is this? I don't recognize him. This is Jesus Christ. This is the word incarnate. This is the one true and living God. The Jesus that's preached today, the one that people sing about and talk about, is not the biblical Jesus. The one that we hear about today cares more about being nice than anything else. He's not concerned with your holiness. He's not concerned with sin in your life. He's not concerned with how you worship him. Any old thing will do. He just wants you to be happy as long as you have a verse on your coffee mug. Jesus is content. No doubt the Jesus of today is not the Jesus of the Bible. And as such, it is a Jesus that cannot save. When we prop up a false image of who Jesus is, that Jesus cannot save you. This is what we must grasp about Jesus, that he is nothing like us. You and I are not perfect. Yet Jesus is absolutely kind and merciful and gentle and also just and righteous and holy and indignant towards sin. He is perfectly all of those things all at once Even as he's making this whip of cords, as he's driving everyone out of the temple, as he's speaking firmly with those who are making his father's house, a house of trade. Even in that moment, Jesus is still perfectly kind and merciful and gentle and just and righteous and holy. That means that even today, he's all of those things. Many think that since we're in this time of grace after the cross, that God is no longer angered by sin. But Hebrews 13.8 tells us, as explicitly as it can be, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. you know one of the biggest problems that we have? One of the hardest truths of Scripture is that Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. That means the God of wrath that you think is confined to the Old Testament is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Likewise, what does that mean? That today he is filled with holy anger when the worship of God is cheapened or diminished or turned into something it ought not be. We must not admire the kindness of God while overlooking the severity of God. Where do I get that from? Paul, Romans eleven twenty-two. Both the kindness and severity of God. Let us not forget that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is also the Lion of Judah who hates the sin of the world. Verse 17 tells us that the disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. As I said, that's a reference to Psalm 69, verse 9. But why zeal? I thought Jesus was the nice guy. Why zeal? Why, why passion? Was Jesus ultimately passionate about the second temple? The 35 acres that it took up? The, the walls? No, of course not. Jesus is ultimately concerned about what the temple is there representing that it is the meeting place of God and man. This is where God and man meets. It is where sacrifices for sin are offered, and it is the place where people come to worship the one true and living God. And here are these people turning it into a house of trade, a marketplace as though it's just any old thing. It's important for us to see here, Jesus isn't rebuking the practices themselves. Did you notice that? He didn't say, stop selling animals. What did he say? Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Don't turn it into a marketplace. Jesus' zeal is centered on his father's house being desecrated. In the synoptics, Jesus does rebuke the people for their deceitful practices. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he kicks everyone out and says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. In both instances, Jesus is clearing out the temple But in our account, the primary thing that John is drawing out is Jesus' zeal for his father's house. It's helpful for us to read the rest of the passage that verse 17 points us to, Psalm 69. This is what it says. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David is saying in that psalm that what has come against God has come against him. The terrible things that are done against God, it's as if they have been done against David. It is a heart-wrenching psalm where David is pouring himself out before the Lord and describing the immense pain that he is experiencing. And why is he experiencing that pain? It's because the reproaches that have been done against God have come upon him what does that mean? He's so heartbroken and overwhelmed because of what people are turning worship into. That is what is breaking David's heart. And how often do we hear today people can worship however they want. You, you have your way. You have, I have my way. But what does God say? What about God's way? How God cares about his worship. Here Jesus has zeal for the house of the Lord. And this is a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ in Psalm 69. Christ is angered at this moment because he knows his father is angered by this. He knows his father is angered when that which is consecrated unto the Lord is desecrated. Being God himself, he experiences this holy anger and he cleanses the temple of God, which is also fulfilling another passage. I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 3 with me. In case you've never heard of that book, it's right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 3. This is fulfilling another passage. And as we read this, you're going to notice John is kind of following this theme. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord speaking, behold, I send my messenger. Who is that? It's John the Baptist. He will prepare the way before me. We've already seen that in chapter one. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Well, isn't that exactly what's going on now? The, t- the, the messenger came preparing the way. And then now the Lord whom they seek has suddenly come to the temple. And the messenger of my covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, that sounds like excellent news, doesn't it? The Lord is coming to the temple, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he would purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings of righteousness in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. What does that tell us about the offerings that are being given at that time? That they are not pleasing to the Lord. Do you know there is a way that you can worship the one true and living God that is not pleasing to him? We think that any old thing will do. I can do it my way and you do it your way. And we completely forget that God has given us the way. So we can bring worship to him that as it is written in the prophets, God despises He says oftentimes, get your sacrifices away from me. I can't take it. They are grossly displeasing to God when we make worship something of our own invention and we completely disregard what God says. After all, worship, if you hear nothing else, is not about you. Worship is not for you. Worship is about and for the one true and living God. That is the significance of the cleansing of the temple. Christ is coming in as a refiner's fire and He is purifying His people so that they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The temple was where the place where people worshipped God. It's not the place where you buy and sell. It was the place where God would meet with man, not where man would make a profit. We see the Son of God is zealous about the worship of God. But as you know, whenever Jesus confronts us in our sin, it is deeply offensive. Let's look at this confrontation with the Jews, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? As always, the Jews come to Jesus looking for a sign and to question his authority. They come to him and essentially they're asking, who do you think you are? You, you come in here and clean out the temple as though you have the authority to do so. You better produce some credentials. Show us who you think you are. And they're asking for a sign. They're asking him to, to show them that he's the Messiah. Because only the Messiah would have a higher authority than the ones who are in, in charge of the temple. So that's who you must think you are, right? Show us a sign. We can see here that the Jews understood this act to be Christ demonstrating Some measure of authority. But they don't say, you weren't supposed to do that. We have the right to do this. They knew they were wrong. They said, who do you think you are coming in here talking to me like that? Who do you think you are coming in here and interrupting our good thing that we had going on? Show us a sign. We're reminded of 1 Corinthians, aren't we, when Paul said the Jews always seek a sign? This is what they are known for. And it's often, as in this case, that they want Jesus to validate who he is to them. But interestingly, he never does. They didn't have the eyes to see that what Christ was doing was itself a sign, it was the fulfillment of Malachi 3. They aren't asking him why he kicked everyone out. They're not asking him why he said what he said. They must have some level recognized that he was right. And as they ask for a sign, what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Don't you just love the way that Jesus is never forced into a corner? Never. He never bends to the will of his adversaries. You see, the thing that they are completely missing is, once again, that what Jesus did is itself a sign. He is asserting his authority here because he's the Messiah. He cleansed the temple because it is, he is the Son of God. And this is the temple of God. He predates the temple. The temple is ultimately pointing to him. The Jews don't get it. They don't understand what he's saying. What do you mean, destroy this temple? As you remember, I said just a bit ago that they started renovating in 20 B.C., and here we are nearing 30 B.C., and they're still renovating the temple. They're still working on it. And historians say it's not even completed until the early 60s A.D., only to then be destroyed a few, few years later in A.D. 70. And here they are. They're hearing him say, "You destroy this temple and you're going to raise it up and." three days? Are you kidding? It's taken 46 years, and we're still not done. If anything, this is a cut down to themselves, isn't it? It's taken us 46 years, and we're still working on it, but you're going to do it in three days. Yeah, sure. Now, on the one hand, as we read this, we can think to ourselves that Jesus wouldn't even need three days If he were talking specifically, literally, about the temple being destroyed, Jesus wouldn't need three days. He would need three seconds. He wouldn't even need that much time. He could instantly raise it back up. If he wanted to, of course. Further, why would they destroy the temple anyway? Jesus is telling them that if they were to destroy the temple, he could raise it back up. Jesus knows very well they idolized this temple. This was a source of national pride and religious pride for them. There's no way they're going to destroy this temple. Jesus knows quite well what he is saying here. It is everything to them. The temple is where they are honored. It's where they have their status. It's where they exercise authority. And not to mention it's the place where they can make good money. It isn't the love of money, the root of all evil. Once again, Jesus is not pinned down by questions, but he pins everyone else down with his piercing statements. Thankfully, we find out in verse 21 that Jesus wasn't speaking about the temple physically. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Otherwise, you and I would still be confused today, just as the disciples evidently were, because John writes, in a very honest tone we didn't get it until after he was resurrected after he was raised back up then we understood what jesus was saying so that means even the disciples are sitting here listening to jesus saying what is he talking about he's going to he's going to raise the i don't understand but i know that he turned water into wine let's just hang around evidently something good's going on here Maybe he'll tell us later what he meant. This is very similar to what Jesus spoke in Matthew twelve thirty nine, as the Pharisees once again are asking for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here he is confronted with this evil and adulterous generation seeking for a sign, and he's essentially saying the same thing. The only sign that they will be given is that he will raise from the dead after they kill him. This is a challenge. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it back up. The sign they will be given is the vindication of all that Christ ever did and said. It will be the event that will prove that he is the son of God. It is his resurrection from the dead. But until then, he owes no one anything. He doesn't owe these religious leaders assigned to satisfy their evil and adulterous hearts, so they won't get one. Jesus' words here are so veiled that his disciples are there, confused. They've seen his glory manifested at the wedding in Cana. It says that they believed in him They still don't understand that this Messiah was not coming to fulfill all of their wildest dreams. He was coming to suffer for sinners. And don't we see that all throughout Jesus's life, that his disciples just don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. it. Even up until the night of Jesus's betrayal, Peter says, this will not happen. I'm going to go with you to the death. It's not going to happen because the Messiah was a conquering king. He wasn't a suffering servant. He was supposed to vindicate them of their enemies. But here Jesus is coming into his own temple for his own people and saying, You're the problem. Not Rome. You're the problem. Not everyone else. You don't need to be restored to national promise, prominence. You need to fix your heart. Your heart is the issue. The enemy that he came to vanquish was the enemy that reigned supreme in their hearts. It was sin. John is very clear in pointing us here to the reality that Jesus ultimately is the true temple. Zeal for the house of God consumes him. Because as He tabernacled among us, as the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, we remember from John chapter 1, verse 14, that He was the meeting place of God. That if anyone is to meet with God, he must go to Jesus. He is the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. And he told us, And no one comes to the Father except through me. We will learn in John chapter 4 as we talked about in Sunday school. It's not about places. It's about a person. It's about going through Jesus to get to the Father. And until we have done that, my friends, we don't have the Father. Until you have believed upon Christ, you have abandoned your own self-righteousness. You have abandoned works. Just like these Pharisees are doing, these Jewish religious leaders are doing, they are trusting in their rituals. They are trusting in their outward actions, saying, we have a right to do this. We have a right to do this. We are justified before God. And here Jesus comes cleansing these people, saying, your worship is worthless. I wonder how many of us in here this morning would be confronted in that same way by Jesus? Have you come to him? Have you come to the Father through the person of Christ? What can we take from this account of Jesus cleansing the temple? I want to give us two points of application. We could spend, surely, the whole day talking about ways that this could apply, but I want to focus on just two. The first one, as I've mentioned already, that Jesus is passionate about being worshipped rightly. Friends, if Jesus was so upset by his house being turned into a marketplace, how much more upset would he be to see the state of the American church today? The over-marketed, over-commercialized church in America. How upset is he even people are bringing him false, fake, empty worship. You and I have this idea that we are so loving and so kind. We don't want to look at other people's worship and say that it's right or wrong. We would be wrongly self-righteous if we were the ones who were determining that. Absolutely. But my friends, we have a book and it tells us how God wants to be worshipped. He tells us how He wants to be worshipped and that we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. When we sing songs that are full of half-empty truth or full of things that are not true about Jesus, you can raise your hands, you can even cry, you can get chill bumps and not be worshipping God. Did you know that? There have been plenty of people throughout the ages who have gone to a concert. You see the videos at Nelvis concert, at a Justin Bieber concert. Hit a soft spot for some of you there, didn't I? At a Justin Bieber concert. And you know what they're doing? They're raising their hands. Their eyes are closed and they're crying. We think that that means you are worshiping God. But you can do that anywhere with any kind of music that moves you emotionally. That is not worship. What worship is is what God has defined it as. It is telling the truth, proclaiming the truth of who God is. Who He is. That is where true worship is found. How many times in your life do you find or have you found that you've been bringing God worship that is unworthy of Him? Vonny bakum said, quote, "The modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well." End quote." We have today, we don't call our church services church services. They're called a worship experience. But who is really experiencing the worship? It's not God. It's the idol of self, the idol of emotionalism, the idol of riding an emotional high. But secondly, as you know, First Corinthians 3.16 tells us, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Jesus came in to cleanse the temple because they were not worshiping God rightly and that they had turned the meeting place of God and man into a marketplace. You know, in 1 Peter, when we went through that, Peter says something very piercing, that it is time for judgment to begin where? In the household of God. That would be you and I. Judgment. It is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Now, as we stand here having this whole canon of Scripture, we know that Jesus is the the true temple. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. But Scripture also tells us that if we have the Spirit dwelling within us, that we are the temple of God. So, as you examine your heart here this morning, what ways have you desecrated that which is to be consecrated? Let us be reminded that the church is not the only place where Christians worship. We worship God with our life. You're not the temple of God here in this building. If you are a believer, everywhere you go, you are the temple of God. We worship God with our lives when we are a living sacrifice. As Paul tells us in Romans 12.1, look at your life. Are you living as a living sacrifice unto God? Are you a living sacrifice? That means your way, your desires, your goals, your aspirations, they die at the altar before God. Hebrews 13 tells us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, and to not neglect to do good and share what you have. He says that these are sacrifices unto God. I know that we live in a time where everyone is so busy. In America, this is our biggest problem. I'm convinced of it that we are trained and taught and brought up to chase the American dream, to trace bigger, better of status, your career, that we are taught and raised to believe and to live in such a way where we are building our own kingdom. No doubt the temple on the day that Jesus walked in was busy and crowded. All of this commotion had distracted from the worship of, of God, so what ways in your life have you has busyness in the commotion of your life crowded out the worship of God and distracted you from worshiping God with your whole life? My friends, what tables need to be flipped? Understand that Jesus is zealous for this. He's not saying it would be really nice if you would. He is zealous and passionate about his people living and honoring him and worshiping him with their life. Plenty of people find themselves to be too busy for church, too busy to study the word and too busy to pray. But let me ask you, when was the last time that you were too busy with church, too busy with serving Too busy with study. Too busy with prayer to do other things. You want to see where your priorities are? When you get busy, what goes out the door? That will tell you where your priorities are. But just like the Pharisees, our natural inclination is to say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are talking to me that way? I pray that instead what we would do is before the Lord this morning say, Lord, flip the tables. Clear it out. Clear out the things that are in my heart that are not pleasing to you. Kill the things in my busy schedule that are keeping me from you. Because at the end of the day, my friends, when we stand before God, Do we want to hold up the empty rags of the kingdom we built for ourselves here on this earth? Do we think that we'll stand before God and he'll say, wow, that's amazing. Or do we want to stand before him with cuts and bruises and blood still pouring out of us saying, I gave my life for you because you gave your life for me. Do we want to stand before him? knowing that we lived as a living sacrifice. We didn't live according to the American culture, but we lived according to what God spoke. Which one is it for you this morning? Let's stand. My prayer is that we would resolve here this morning that whatever tables need to be flipped, whatever needs to be driven out, that you would resolve, that you would live a life of right worship unto our God, for he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that cuts. I know how it has cut me just preparing for this. Lord, I pray that you would restore in all of our hearts a sense of holy awe, that we would be reminded that, yes, you are so kind and gracious and merciful towards us, but you are also a consuming fire. That we would be reminded that you take worship seriously, not just in song, but with our life. Would I pray that you would search our hearts, that you would convict us where it's necessary. Lord, that your word would pierce our hearts that we would turn from those things that are not pleasing to you to live a life of sacrificial worship unto the one true and living God. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.